Welcome to episode 2 of the Avatar Hour podcast, the show where we discuss all things Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. I'm Andre. And I'm Kayla. And before we dive into the episode, we do want to let you guys know that this podcast will be discussing full spoilers for both Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. However, you are free from spoilers regarding any Avatar Universe comic books and also The Rise of Kyoshi and its sequel, The Shadow of Kyoshi. In this week's episode, we are here to talk about the Avatar live action series that is coming to Netflix soon and sort of talk about where we stand on it as fans of the original show and some of our expectations and hesitations, anxieties even about the show going forward and maybe some concerns we have about how it'll affect the reputation of the original show. Um, so just to set the stage for this discussion, Netflix announced back in 2018 in September that it would be producing a live action adaptation of Avatar. Kayla, when you saw this uh, article or this headline for the first time, what was your first reaction to it? I can't believe that was 2018 when that was first announced. And we haven't really heard that much about it, which we'll get more into that later. But I remember I saw it on Facebook the first time uh, it was announced. And I had kind of a mixed bag of emotions on this. Like, obviously, we both love the show, you know, both, you know, Collegial Core and Airbender. Obviously, enough to do a podcast on it. But, you know, as someone who loves the show, I was kind of like, you know, excited to see that story again. But I definitely say that my, like, hesitancy kind of outweighed my, like, any initial, like, excitement I saw for it. Like, my excitement can be summed up as, like, okay, they have another chance at doing it better live action. But my hesitancy was, like, do we kind of need to have a live action adaptation of Avatar? Because, I mean, we see the movie, saw how the movies failed spectacularly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, like, the show... You know, we'll get into this more later, but personally, I think the show is just like, I mean, I'm not saying it's perfect by any means, but it's pretty damn close to perfect when it comes to storytelling. And I'm not crapping all over the idea of a live action uh, series of Avatar. Uh, At least I'm trying not to. Uh, But I just think like, you know, if like, is there something that's new they're trying to do with this? Because, you know, there's so many interesting things that were brought up in the show. I kind of have a hard time thinking about what's missing and not to do a, a new version of it, if you will. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think when I first saw the headline, initially I was nervous and confused. But when I when I read that the original creators would be involved, I had much less anxiety about it. Um especially knowing what happened with Nickelodeon's live-action movie, The Last Airbender, and how they were kind of unceremoniously ousted from that production. I can I can definitely understand some people's anxiety about this because it really is such a, a real cultural phenomenon, especially now with it coming back to Netflix and Legend of Korra coming up in two weeks on Netflix. I can imagine why people are, are wanting to keep it close to their chest and be like, Oh no, don't, don't touch this perfect thing. Like, why are we, why are we trying to mess with this? So I don't know. I think I am more excited about it than I am nervous. The only reason I'm nervous about it is that I think it will cause a lot of discourse because <laughs> live action adaptations in the last couple of years have been sort of universally panned as not great for most people. Um, in fact, it's hard to, to pinpoint a live action adaptation that everyone really, really loves. So I think it was, it was a bold move going this direction. Um, but I'm personally excited to see where it goes and I'm in, am I interested to see this cinematic take on Avatar? 
Yeah, I mean, in this vein of, like, talking about live action and, like, kind of, like, the history of, like, live action adaptations from original source material being animation, um, we haven't really seen, like, TV shows being, like, remade into live action. You don't see too many, like, animated shows be, you know, kind of change, not really changing mediums, but changing, I can't think of the right word for it, but, you know, like, going from animation to live action. That doesn't happen for like for a tv show to be another tv show you know yeah well i mean the the other the only example that's coming to mind currently is the spongebob movies that are coming out that are getting like full theatrical releases do you know which ones i'm talking about you're talking about sponge out of water yeah that one yeah okay i have not seen that i haven't seen it either so i can't i can't talk to its um quality by any means but i mean it's kind of it's not the same thing obviously but there there seems to be like some sort of precedent for turning animation cartoons into something cinematic like that. So I don't really know. Actually, it's, I mean, like I've seen, well, we've already seen live action adaptations that we're not talking about the movie there. That is a, the movie is a different episode that is coming. Uh, yeah. That is something to look forward to because I've never seen it. Andre has. Uh, so that'll be a very interesting episode. So teaser for that. Um, but there's a lot of fan films out there of yeah. avatar and like scenes because i remember i saw one that a uh, person who did like uh the final agni kai uh from season three mm, yeah. and like i've seen people do like fan films like the legend of korra and i don't know i liked how some of these kind of brought like it was kind of cool to see like the, the fighting style brought to like real people you know sure so there's i'm optimistic about that kind of stuff too i think it's really interesting so Obviously, this announcement came about two years ago now, which is crazy because, you know, it came out, you know, that announcement came out a while ago and we don't still don't know like too crazy much. Like a lot of the details about it are kind of vague. Um, I mean, we do know that the original creators uh, break, as we call them, uh, and they'll be helming the project as showrunner and executive producers. And they've committed to co- casting a culturally appropriate and non-whitewashed cast, which unfortunately was one of the many sins yeah. of the uh, movie. And uh, Dan Lin, who's the director of the Lego movie, will also be involved as an executive producer. And also uh, the person who voiced Toph, uh, Jesse Flowers, has said that they're looking to cast actors that are close to the original age of the main leads, but that has not been confirmed. Um, yeah, yeah. Dante Bosco, who's the voice of Zuko, has said that he would somehow be involved in this project. Um, Which, what, what do you think that that means will somehow be involved? I don't know. Um, I mean, he has reappeared in other Avatar things, like as not as Zuko. Like he was, um, he played a character in Legend of Korra in season one, yeah, but General not a major Iroh, one. Yeah. yeah, General Iroh in season one of Korra, but like he wasn't like a. I mean, he's an important character in the arc that he was in, but like, you know. I don't. I'm very curious about that though. Like, maybe he'll be he foaming at the mouth, guy. Oh my god! Or he... Sparky, Sparky Boom Man, maybe. I don't that know. Would be interesting. Yeah, that's definitely going to be looking forward to for sure. I mean, I want to say he'll be the Cabbage Man, but the Cabbage Man voice actor is trying to petition to get into the live action series, and I'm one. I'm 100 behind that. <laughs> Absolutely. Wait, was he also the same actor? Did he also play uh, like the Cabbage Core person uh, yeah. in? Cora, because yeah. I'm like I'm pretty sure I'm the same guy. Um, we also know that um, Brian Konitsko has said that they are still in the development and pre-production stage back in March. 
Um, in this past May, he has also posted on, on his Instagram saying, and this is quoted, we're trying to make something special that will stand the test of time. We can assure you that everyone is making good use of that time so we can craft something beautiful and emotionally powerful. Also, so we can make sure Appa is cute, which is like a, high on the list of priorities. He looks like a, like a, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen pictures from it. And Appa looks like a dirty mop. It looks like a mop that I would use at my at my uh, lifeguarding I, job. Yeah, I have a I funny 15. story about that, but I will save that for when we do save that for the movie. The I episode have... on the movie. Yeah, yeah. So um, we have, like, we're gonna we're trying to build up to that movie episode. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna save that for a for a rainy day for sure. Oh, um, and one development that I'm personally excited about is that Jeremy Zuckerman, who is the original composer for both Atla and Legend of Korra, will return to score the series. And I think that's so cool because it must be so wild for him to like have this history with the show and then sort of get a chance to do it all over again. I can see how that that can be like exciting, but also kind of daunting. Like, how do I how do I do the same music, but make it new? I don't know. That's that's one of the things that I'm really interested to see how he pulls off. I mean, I got to say, though, with like, uh, you know, with having to return to this franchise with Korra, you know, he had kind of a similar challenge presented with Korra with doing like, you know, kind of carrying into a new series, kind of keeping mm-hmm. elements of the old, but adding in the new. He's kind of presented with like a similar challenge, only it's for revisiting that first project. I think I remember you telling me before we started doing this podcast that uh, a- that Avatar was one of uh, Jeremy Zuckerman's first uh uh, jobs as a composer. Am I right about that? If I'm re- if I'm remembering correctly, I think this was his first scoring job. Don't quote me on that, but I I've listened to a lot of interviews and he really talks about this one as sort of his main sort of TV gig that he did. Yeah, and and you know there there is some sort of precedent. Speaking of live action, like when they did the the live action adaptation of The Lion King and Hans Zimmer returned to score it again, he he did some some new and interesting things with the score that he had written 25 years ago. And I really hope that they get a live orchestra for this. I, ho- I hope they get that Netflix money and can offer them an, a live orchestra to record with because a lot of, a lot of the score for both Atla and the legend of Korra is mostly computer that is sort of synthesized with real recorded performers. So I mean, yeah, I'm interested to see how all of that, pans out for sure they're gonna get that netflix money okay like avatar has become one of the most popular things i've seen on twitter in the last like three months since quarantine started like you know yeah but the music department (laughs) can be hit or miss it it, kind of just depends on on what netflix feels like they can put their money to i mean like going forward i mean like probably the out of everything those visual effects are probably going to be the most expensive part of the show yeah, well, we can get into more into visual stuff later because that's one of the things I'm kind of like looking forward to seeing from the series, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah. So I think the most interesting part of this development about the live action series is that this is this is coming out more than 15 years since the show first aired. Which is crazy. So I want to ask you, like, what, what do you think it is about Avatar that has made it stick around for all of these years? Yeah, it's really interesting for me for as someone who got into the fandom pretty late to think about the show going on air for the first time 15 years ago. 
Um, you know, I mean, it's been kind of hanging around in my memory even before I watched it fully. You know, friends of mine would talk about it in high school, I remember, in the locker room. Like, I had some friends who enjoyed talking about it, and I was ever being intrigued, but I just never got around to watching it. So it's definitely shown how much it's kind of hung around people's, like, collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and now with, like, Netflix having... Uh, Avatar and now Legend of Korra it's definitely brought a lot the show back to people's attention like whether they were fans of the show from the start like you were or they were like me who had heard about it but hadn't really gotten a chance to watch it until later I mean what makes it stick around for so long is how powerful the story is and how like dynamic and interesting and human these characters are like, we can see ourselves in a lot of these characters uh, in their flaws and in their struggles. And, you know, we also quote the uh, cactus juice scene a lot, too. That does help. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, that's what I was going to say. I think in large part, the reason that this show has stuck around for so long is its fandom. And Avatar is one of the most heavily memed TV shows of its time. And it's weird to say, but meme potential plays so much in how a show survives past its ending it's really weird like we as a as a culture and as as a culture that consumes so much media the memes are a big part of why things stick around for so long you know i definitely do think that the fandom is is definitely the main reason that this show has stuck for so long because it has touched so many people more profoundly than most things. And, you know, but I, by the time that Legend of Korra was bunted online, I think when Bryce saw how much dedication there was to continuing to see the rest of the series through, even with the move to online, I think they realized just how, I think they had some sort of idea by that point, but by the end of it, it must've been amazing for them to see all of those fans that were just like, you're, you're moving online. Okay. I'm going to watch online. You know, that's fine. We'll, we'll still see it as long as you're making it, we're going to watch it. So I think that's, that's really special. Absolutely. In preparation for this question, I was looking around for any answers to this question from people who have worked on avatar. And in this virtual comic-con panel that they did, um, the moderator asked some of these writers who have written in the avatar universe, what do you think it is about avatar that keeps bringing people back over the years? And one of the panelists, Faith Aaron Hicks, had a really interesting answer. Um, For those of you who don't know, Faith is a writer and comic artist for some of the comic books. And I I just want to play a snippet of of this answer. Go ahead and take a listen. Looking at it too, it's so unusual to, or particularly in the time that you were making it, it was so unusual where you had an animated show where the characters would evolve. You know, they would change and grow over the course of three seasons. Like... I mean, I I do feel like the characters are probably why it stands the test of time. Like, people return because they they love these characters so much. Like, I, you know, like, I I feel like, like, Toph in particular was such a big deal for me. Like, having this, I was this huge tomboy as a kid, and, you know, now I feel like we're having this, this huge um surge of like women in animation and female characters and uh animated shows with female leads that is like incredibly important but earlier in the 90s and the you know in the aughts it felt like that was incredibly rare to have like this strong tough like tomboy female character in a show and then also have to have a show with like multiple female leads you know we had katara we had Toph, we had azula 
Um, we had May, we had Tylee. There were so many women in this show. And like, that was something that, you know, like really spoke to my heart as someone who worked in animation. I, I, I did animation college. I worked in the industry for a few years before transitioning into comics. And it's like, I'd never seen anything like that. Something that had so many women in it. Um, and then, yeah, like watching the characters grow and transition and change over the course of those three years, it was so unusual. And that's why I continued to return to the show and continue to be inspired by it and wanting to put like that heart and that empathy into my own work. It was just, yeah, it was so different. I don't know. I feel like now looking at the new sh new animated shows on Netflix, like, like Hilda, like She-Ra, like all of those, like that feels like avatar the next generation like these creators inspired by avatar now getting their own shows which is so amazing yeah it's been really exciting to see yeah those are some really awesome points absolutely i, think. I mean i did not expect to be like kind of tearing up a little bit at that <laughs> but here we are <laughs> yeah i mean right now i'm in the middle of watching shira on netflix and by the way if y'all like avatar you should watch shira i mean i I absolutely adore Shira. That's a different podcast, though. I definitely feel like some of the influence of Avatar is definitely rubbed into Shira's story. You know, I can gush about that all day, but it's you can definitely tell. And Noelle Stevenson, actually, I think uh, she started um, like she was a Korosami fan artist. I remember hearing somewhere. So you can definitely you cannot mm. deny the impact that Avatar has had on animation and children's animation. You know, like. She-Ra is not just for, like, for instance, like, She-Ra is not just for, like, you know, young kids to watch, you know, I mean, I'm 21 years old and I'm watching She-Ra, I'm 21 years old and watching Avatar The Last Airbender, you know, it's for everyone, really, like, anyone can enjoy this show, yeah. like, anyone can get caught up in the characters and the story, it's timeless. Yeah, and I, I really love her point about um, how those shows are kind of the next generation of Avatar, and I think that that's it and exactly what she said is that avatar is continuously being like sort of imbued into these new shows that want to achieve that same level of storytelling that it can't help but that stick in the consciousness of those writers so it just keeps getting brought up over and over and over again and it hits the same feels for a lot of people who are watching these shows yeah i mean i don't know too many shows like avatar before avatar you know what i mean like yeah i think it really challenged and blew open the world of animation, especially like totally ch you know, children's animation that just completely blew the story open, raised expectations, challenged the idea of what a children's animated show can look like. You know, I mean, of course, uh, another thing that I wanted to point out is, you know, this fantasy story, it's has elements of like classic fantasy epics, like, you know, the whole quest storyline and like, you know, like Lord of the Rings, like, you know, go on the quest to go you know stops an evil bad guy but the influences are different you know like its influences mm -hmm. are not the same set of kind of stale i guess you could say in some cases uh kind of eurocentric stuff it's you think stuff from like you know different parts of the world that are not just europe and i think that is incredibly fresh and unique for western animation you know yeah, and in that same panel, um, Michael DiMartino said that um, Avatar was was one of the first ne uh, shows on Nickelodeon that was telling a continuous story. That that it, it it was never really a thing in children's animation. Um, and he said, you know, even though some of the episodes are standalone, we're still telling a continuous story. And I think that's 
That's a great point. I think, again, I think Avatar is the tone setter for a lot of people sort of our age for the media we consume. And I think it's, I think it's raised a very high bar in some cases for us. Um, but yeah, if you guys want to check out uh, that full Comic-Con panel, the whole thing is on YouTube. So as we kind of mentioned in the introduction for this episode, uh, you know, we've had live action adaptations from animated source material like Disney live action movies and several failed live action movies based off of anime. Um, you know, I, I think a good point you, you made when we were talking about this before we started recording was, uh, you know, is the live action component of uh, you know, the problem or have people just not figured out how to do a live action adaptation? I think that was a really interesting point you made there. Yeah, so I kind of, I kind of break it down into two points with live action because I think it gets a really unfair take for most people um, because I think a lot of people, whether they know it or not, are expecting a one-to-one correlation from the original stuff. And it kind of goes against what people say about live action in that why is it live action if it's just going to be the same thing over and over again? And I think the two big things for me is that we need to embrace live action more as just an interpretation instead of a complete beat for beat retelling. And that's what I want to caution people going into this Avatar live action series, because as someone who is a writer, going back to retell a story that you've already written, in this case, 15 years ago, there is going to be stuff that you want to change because you've grown as a writer and you want to make it better. Some people may not see it as better, the changes that I'm sure they will make. I don't see them, I don't see them making huge monumental story changes, but I do think we can expect some sort of tweaks here and there. So I think we, we need to em- embrace the fact that it's going to be a little different. And that's okay because it's an interpretation and it's also two writers going back to something that they wrote 15 years ago. Of course, they're going to want to change something because they're in in their minds, changing it is improving it. And that's completely fine. And then the second point I want to make about live action is that live action doesn't necessarily need to correlate to photorealism. So this is the, the problem that a lot of people had with the Lion King live action. It was incredibly photorealistic. But in doing that, it really saps a lot of the emotion of the story, especially, you know, when you have animals that not that aren't emoting because animals don't really emote in real life, especially lions, you know. So it's so I what I think needs to happen. I think live action really needs to embrace hyperrealism. There's this great My Hero Academia live action anime video of these two guys fighting and the way it's shot is is very anime like but it's also live action and it's hyper realistic in its angles and it's in its timing and the, the fight choreography. And again, it's not photorealistic, but it's really interesting to watch. And this is the thing that the movie failed to do because it was trying to be photorealistic as possible. And when you have water and fire and earth flying around, the law of physics is going to be different, you know, <laughs> for the, for the impact that you want that to have in a cinematic way things need to be adjusted because because your your number one focus is to make sure things land and things stick with the audience and sometimes that can't be achieved by trying to make sure everything is perfectly how it would happen in real life because you know people are shooting lightning out of their hands this isn't real life and we can embrace it that way so i i'm gonna get off my soapbox but i think those are the, the two <laughs> big things that, that that i talk about a lot with live action adaptations it's the interpretation 
and we need to start embracing the idea that they can be hyper realistic yeah so just i mean i think i kind of know what you mean by hyper hyper realism versus photorealism um like i'm, I'm still confused on it but i think i get it because you made like the point about photorealism with the lion king live action example you know technically it wasn't really the live action but you know what i mean have you seen the guardians of gahul movie like that's about not. the owls and stuff well you know like happy feet or something like the yeah. animals like how expressive those animals are mm-hmm. like would that be kind of an example of like hyperrealism, for instance, with those like kind of with that? Yeah, because penguins don't emote or dance. <laughs> so, so yeah, but well, take take this example, Sonic, the live action Sonic. The first take on that character was they were trying to make it as photorealistic as possible. It and everyone scary. hated it. It was scary, right? Because <laughs> you're trying to translate this this video game character into a, a photorealistic version and it doesn't work and and i haven't seen the movie but i did follow the the whole saga with the the sonic thing but the second take they had on the character embraced more of that hyper realism the exaggerated character emotions and the exaggerated sort of gestures and the way the whole character was designed fit a lot more because it was it was telling the audience we're not trying to be super realistic here. We're just trying to make a good live action adaptation. There you go. That makes a lot more sense now with explaining that. Cause I, I kind of have an idea of what you meant by hyperrealism versus like photorealism, but yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I'm sure probably of other people would have had that same question listening to this. Thanks for clearing yeah. that up a little bit. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you also referenced to uh, the MCU uh, mm-hmm. before about how, I mean, we all kind of forget that the MCU was all inspired by comics <laughs> Right. That is the most successful example of live action adaptations. And I think people don't look at it that way because there's so much distance from those adaptations and its source material. But I do know people that have read all of those comics and take issue with a lot of the changes because the MCU, the adaptation is very loose word. They kind of like to cherry pick what they want to adapt and they make a lot of changes. But again, that's the that's my point is that it's an interpretation of the original source material. I remember like having a conversation with a couple of my friends about like uh, what Disney should be doing live action remakes as if, you know, we're Disney executives or anything, but you know, as Disney fans, as consumers of media, because you know, Disney owns the world now, you know, we talked about like kind of some of the things that we would want to see from these live action remakes uh, in the case of movies, you know, because it seems like they're not really going away anytime soon. Right. Something that some things that we wanted to talk, we talked about was like, um, you know, isn't like they, they should have like something that was not able to be explored in the original edition like mm-hmm. a theme or changing up like the style of it or something just like, including that wasn't there before mm-hmm. expanding on characters that didn't really get uh you know that kind of exploration like interesting characters that didn't really get the same like, you know like, that should have got some more screen time and i can't think of the third one but that was like some of the biggest like points that i can think of because like i mean i'm not the we're not the writers we're not the creators of this universe mm-hmm. but it's interesting because we don't probably don't see the same gaps that might have that they think that that, that they might have want to expand on you know, oh, totally, this. totally. And the Disney live action adaptations are good examples of this because to some extent, they do try to make it a little different. Usually that's by way of adding a new song that wasn't in the original movie, which, you know, can work sometimes and, and sometimes it falls flat. But I mean, I'm, I keep talking about the Lion King one because other it's that one and Aladdin are the only two ones I've seen. But the, the Lion King one, you know, they gave more screen time to that one hyena who had less lines in the original film. So it's kind of like 
I mean, we weren't really thirsting for more of Shenzi, but also like life, like Lion King is such a compact story to begin with. It's kind of hard to look at it and be like, you know, I could really use more of that. You know, <laughs> like it, it's not really like, you know, there are layers to it. I love the Lion King and I thought the adaptation was like fine. I didn't hate it or anything, but yeah. And that's what I'm, what I'm looking forward to going forward is what are they going to highlight? And I think, with these two creators who have such a strong grasp on character, I really think that they're going to know what to highlight and what to maybe, you know, I don't think we really need more of Cabbage Guy. I think he's in it the perfect amount, you know? I think, I mean, you know, come for me if you want to. If you're dying for more Cabbage Guy content, I'm sorry. But to me, he's in it the perfect <laughs> amount. Yeah, I mean, like... Well, they have kind of a unique challenge with this Avatar live-action adaptation because it's not a movie, and it wasn't originally a movie. This is a TV show, which allows them a little bit more space to expand on things that they couldn't expand before. I mean, in movies, like, you haven't seen too many successful movies that were based on TV shows because it's just too much content and character development that gets crammed, as we'll, probably, as we'll mm-hmm. definitely see when we watch the movie. But... Yeah, this presents a unique challenge to the creators because you don't see too many like TV shows get an adaptation, you know, uh, and being made into another TV show, you know? Right, and the thing with this is they it is true that they have more time, but it's also true they have less time. And I'm going to make huge assumptions here, but if we're going by the model of Netflix TV shows, we're probably looking at 12 to 14 episodes and I'm going to assume that they're going to be an hour each. So that means compacting two episodes or taking one episode and turning it into a one hour thing. So I think there will be things that are left out, probably stuff like the great divide that no one loved. <laughs> um, maybe stuff like that, or they'll try to make that better. We don't know. So I mean, we could live with that. <laughs> yeah, I think they're going to have simultaneously more time, but also less time to do things. So and we won't really know until we 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 see it. I don't know. I could maybe see them doing like six seasons and two seasons for one book of the original. I don't know. I don't really know how they're going to plan on doing this. As we learn more information as the show goes on, like if there's like a big breaking news about cast announcements, format announcements, anything like that, we will include that in each of these episodes. Oh, yeah. As they come. Any news that that we hear from that production, you will hear it here as well. Absolutely. I mean, we're not the primary Avatar news source, but we can try to be. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be back with more of the Avatar Hour podcast after this ad. All right. And we're back. So one of the questions that I wanted to bring up was, do we even need to have a live action adaptation of Avatar if we already have the original series, you know? Mm This question I always have mixed feelings about um, because you hear it a lot, especially in the age. I think we're still in the age of reboots and remakes and live action remakes and stuff like that. Yes. You see a lot of people, no one was asking for this. Why do we need this? And I, I mean, I saw a little bit of that with the live action series in terms of in the more extreme spaces of Avatar fandom, but the do we even need a question is kind of pointless when you're talking about art because in its essence, we don't need art, but we make it anyway because we are humans and we want to express ourselves and talk about the times that we're living in. And this question was brought up when Legend of Korra was announced. Do we need a sequel series to Avatar? And 
like how that panned out, depending on your opinion on Quora, I think it turned out pretty well. So, you know, and if, if I want to be really cynical about it, the entertainment business is a business. If the potential for profit is there, then it's going to get made. If there's one person in the room who says, I will pay money to see this, it's going to get made. Like, that's just how it is. And I don't blame them. There's a lot of potential in terms of profit for Netflix in making this live action series. It is going to draw a lot of people to its subscription service if it hasn't already. And it's also going to be the center of the cultural conversation for as long as the show is being made into this live action series. And again, because we don't really know the episode order count or how long each season is going to be, it could be around for a couple of years, maybe even longer. So, you know, that's that's just kind of my take on it. I know it's a little cynical, but... I mean, Legend of Korra was a way to expand the world that we come to love so much and show, you know, how technology comes to play in with this I know they don't I know they keep saying it's not magic, it's bending, but it's it's magic, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's magic. So how like how magic would like integrate with technology. I think Legend of Korra had a really interesting way of exploring that because let's not I mean, let's face it, there's not as many I don't think there's as many like stories out there that are fantasy that involve the use of technology at the same time. So that's what makes Korra so unique in this case. But with like retelling the story of Avatar, that's why I kind of got like that cynical, like, why like, do we even need this? Because we already have the original source material. Right. Um, well, I mean, to I, your point I of mean, what, what you said about Korra, I mean, the same could be technically said for this, is that it, it's it's going to be used as an opportunity to expand on the universe that already exists. You know, it's, it kind of helps make the universe a little less detached, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're seeing like human people doing all of that you know bending and fighting and things like that i don't know i'm interested to see if there's like a you know a different way of connecting with these characters seeing them as flesh and blood people i think it totally depends on how you're coming to the series um if you're if you're going into it and planning on not liking it that really affects how you watch things and the same thing with if you really plan on loving it you're going to look over some things. This is why when I was like 11 or 12 and went to see the last airbender movie, I came out of it loving it and thought it was amazing because I loved avatar so much and thought it was so cool that it was becoming a movie. And then I came back a couple years later and I was like, I liked this, you know? So it's, so I get your point about like, now that these characters will be played by real life people, how is that going to affect how we see those characters? And I think for one, it totally depends who they cast. If it's big name actors, I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but hopefully they're not white. Um, well, they said they weren't going to whitewash it. Right. So. They're not. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Like, will I like Aang more? I mean, I like Aang already, but will I like Aang more? if he's played by a cartoon or an actual person. I don't know. I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how people react to that. That's the thing I never considered, like I didn't really think about before was like with connecting with these characters, seeing them as flesh and blood people and not just cartoon characters and not saying that you can't connect with these characters when they're animated, because that would be completely dissing on the hard work that all these animators put into this show and the love that they put into it and how much craftsmanship and amazingness came into it because the voice actors are extremely talented. Don't get me wrong. Don't ever get me wrong. Those are like some of the, you know, extremely talented. They have a lot of work to do with just conveying the story through their voices, but 
the performance wouldn't be as powerful without the animators making those facial expressions happen and body language. So, you know, kind of having like the actors kind of doing both of those things, having to emote with their voice and their bodies, like interesting points that I didn't think about before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see how they uh, handled that. But in terms of specifically new things we want to see for this series, um, I was sort of researching what some other people thought. And I found this really interesting article from CBR.com by Rachel Roth. And she talks about how maybe the live action series will offer a new story for Azula. So I'm going to read this little snippet and we'll see what we think. Unlike her brother, Azula didn't come into the story until book two Earth. Her first appearance was technically in book one during the flashback showing how Zuko got his scar, but she was just a nameless face standing in the crowd. It wasn't until later when audiences came to know who she was, and it was even farther down the road when they realized that she was just as tragic a character as Zuko. It was her late introduction, however, that kept her in the villain lane. If Azula had been introduced earlier in the series, there's a chance that she could have received a redemption arc similar to that of her brothers. So basically, she's saying that she wants Azula to be introduced much earlier in order for us to get a better sense of who she is as a character. What do you think about that? I think one of the many things that makes Zuko's uh, redemption arc in the series work really well is to show how he kind of, how his bad actions pale in the comparison of people like Azula and the Fire Lord. I feel like having Azula become a sympathetic character a little bit earlier on and learning more about her I don't think that that will help Zuko's redemption arc because clearly that's a critical part of that sh- of the show. Yeah. Um, and of course the final Agni Kai, that's again, another critical moment of the show. We need to have that tension. I mean, there's tension and sympathy. That's the two key things of that Agni Kai at the end of the show. Um, but I think, I mean, I like, I always love seeing Azula. I think she's a very interesting character on screen. Like whenever she's on screen, she, you know, captures people's attention. I definitely would like to see more of her. However, I think the part where she's introduced needs to stay the same. This is my, my problem with, with how I feel about her statement that she wants Azula to be introduced earlier. Cause like, I know that the way she's depicted as a child, they've already written her as kind of sociopathic and violent and scary. I think if they're going to change anything, I think what they can do to Azula is make her a little more complex than that. Because to me, the turn that really happens with Azula's character is when she sees Zuko getting burned for the first time. Because imagine seeing your brother get burned by your father and you already know your mother hates you. So what are you going to do? You're going to manipulate your own character as a person to suit what your father wants from you. In this case, your father is Fire Lord Ozai, like a complete psychopath. And that's why in my sort of head canon, she wants to be that perfect person that that is a master firebender, that is a master manipulator. I mean, she's the one that suggests that they burn down the entire earth kingdom by the end you know there was there's this disconnect between azula and the rest of the world even though she wants to put on this facade that she's really smart and she knows everything there is a disconnect there so i think i agree that i think i want to keep her in the same place but i think i want them to take a little more nuance and show us how she got to the point that she is i think i think it is important for her to be the same Azula by the time we get to the final Agni Kai, I don't think that's something we want to change. Like the final Agni Kai has a very specific dynamic that I don't think 
we should be changing because it it all at the end of the day really serves Zuko as a character, and that's the purpose of that Agni Kai. And I I don't know I I feel like I also feel like I don't need a redemption arc for every villain. Like that's the thing. No. Like like I know she gets one after the show concludes, but like saying Azula should get a redemption arc is almost saying like Ozai should get a redemption arc. I don't feel like those two characters need to get one in order to be interesting you know so no. i'm up two minds of it i could i could see them introducing her earlier to explain more of her backstory and how she goes down that path of being this sociopath that that is hungry for power like her father i think if they nailed that that comparison between her and ozai a little more than they did in the original series i think it could land a little better but i think i'm with you i i, I kind of want to keep her introduction in the same place but I want a little more depth there as well. Yeah, kind of sort of shifting gears about things that we wanted to expand a little more. I mean, I'm interested, you know, I'm not expanding, but like a different way of seeing bending. Yeah. I don't just want to be the person who's like, but the effects were decent, you know, like, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking of like some of the earth bending sequences mm-hmm. from Avatar. Like it was like three guys like flip the t- a freaking tank or something. Yeah. Could you imagine seeing that? Like seeing like real people flipping a tank with the freaking earth. Like I think this is gonna freak us out a little bit. Honestly, like yeah, I think it's gonna it's going to be surreal and terrifying to see Azula lightning bend. Like I think that there there's just something about bending and also blood bending. Oh god! Like the freaking sound of it, the sound the sound mixing for blood bending, man. Like that just sends shivers down your spine. Like it just it's just so wrong, disjointed. Like oh yeah, actors are gonna have a lot of work to do with blood bending. There there is a there is a pace to the bending in both shows that I I hope that they at least nail with with the live action. Because if it's just a little off, we're just going to know. There's just a, a dynamic and a pacing to most of the bending fights in the show that really make it awesome. So I hope they I hope they, they take good care of that. Another thing I want to see in the show is I want to see more of Uncle Iroh's past. Yes. Specifically the Siege of Ba Sing Se. Because I feel like there is a PTSD there that is not addressed in the show. I mean, it is when we, you know, leaves from the vine, you know, all crying our eyes out. And Iroh's still mourning the loss of his son because I, I think he sort of sees it as his fault because he was hungry for that power and that got him the loss of his son. So I would really love a little more backstory into that. If if we get any more backstory into characters, I really want more of Uncle Iroh. I never even considered that until you brought that up because, you know, I just I absolutely adore Iroh. I mean, anyone, anyone who watches the show adores Iroh. I mean, if you don't like Iroh, then you have no soul. <laughs> exactly. Like, seriously? Yeah. Like, how could you not love that character? I mean, that would make so much, it would make, like, I mean, if you knew more about Ira's backstory and, like, that, you know, explored that pain of losing his son, I mean, also, like, remember the scene when, like, Zuko is about to, like, free Appa and, like, you know, try to, like, use that to get Aang, and Ira's, like, calls him out on his bullshit, and he's, like, you know, gotta ask yourself the big questions on, like, who you are, what you want, that kind of thing. Could you imagine, like, a parallel between him interacting with his son? Oh. Like, could you imagine that? I just got chills. Like, yeah, I could imagine that. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Like, you know, yeah, that would just make moments like that so much more powerful because everyone talks about like, you know, the moment when like Iroh is, uh, you know, Zuko apologizes to Iroh and you know moments like that and like when they open the the jet, you know, the Jasmine tea shop. Not a lot of people talk about that moment 
with Iroh and Zuko in Bossing Say when Zuko's about to like you know come up with some half cocked plan to get Aang again. When yeah. like, Iroh like it's one of the first times it's one of the few times you see Iroh get like that kind of intensity. Yeah, you know, like he wasn't able to save his son from going. You know, totally, totally, and it, it's more implied in the show. But I mean, I think he definitely sees a lot of of his son and Zuko, and this is what I'm talking about. I feel like there is so much that we still need to know about Uncle Iroh and more of his relationship with his brother. Yeah, like I really want to see where where the rift started. You know, I think it kind of hints in the show that after his failure at, at the Wall of Bossing Say, that's when Ozai sort of looked down on him, you know, because that was a very big deal for the Fire Nation and it didn't pan out the way they wanted. But in the show, it's so black and white, the, the relationship between him and Ozai. But, you know, even if your brother is a psychopath, it's your brother, you know, there's just a lot there with, with Uncle Iroh that I, I really want to see. I'm going to be honest, I forget sometimes that Ozai and Iroh related. I know his name's literally yeah. Uncle Iroh, but I forget that they are li- that, that he is literally blood relatives to the biggest villain in the series. Yeah. You know, like I forget that. You make up a really good point with that. Like I forgot that they grew up together. Yeah, or did they? We don't know. Ooh, yeah, even better. Like they, you know, they were raised in the same family and turned out to be two completely different people. Which I mean, Zuko and Azula, same thing. Oh, could you imagine the parallels though between like Zuko and Azula's upbringing and like him and like yes, girl. Yes. Ozai's upbringing? I mean, two siblings both turned out to be very different than each other. One like psychopathic father and to take a step further i mean uncle iroh failing at the the wall of bossing say is kind of the same thing as zuko's banishment even if he might have not have been physically banished from the fire nation we don't know maybe he was there there is a there is a separation after that but also he's the motherfucking dragon of the west yeah i want to see how he got that title and i want to see his fight with the last dragon you know i think i almost want an entire episode just about uncle iroh yes I think I would love all of this to happen while he's in the jail cell. And he's just oh. thinking about his life. Yes. You're welcome, Netflix. There you are. Go ahead and... and Netflix, listen to this episode. We got some great take ideas. Take it and run Hi. with it, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Please. We love the show. We want to see cool shit happen. <laughs> on a smaller note, I want to see if they actually kill Jet on screen. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Netflix, you know, Netflix originals sometimes go straight to pretty dark places. But yeah, they could do some things that Nickelodeon couldn't that they couldn't show on Nickelodeon. Exactly. Like, what's the rating going to be like here? Are we still gearing it towards kids or are we gearing it more to the people that grew up with the show? I guess I'm just wondering, like, what's their marketing for this? Like, do they do they want to bring in kids to that story for the first time? Or is it more like a love letter to the people who have who've watched it since the very beginning? I'll be honest. I think they're probably going to gear it more towards, like, people like our age I think so too. The ones who grew up with the show and, like, want to see it again in a different way. I think I th- it's going to be along the, the same maturity of Legend of Korra. But I also don't I also don't want it to be mature and sap the comedy no. from, from the show and the humor. Because that's a big part of it. Yeah. I don't want the grim dark stuff. I mean, yeah, we like rave about the Agni Kai. We can't. We can have that as long as we have some sort of balance, you know? It's all, the show's all about balance, okay? You know? It's all about balance. <laughs> I mean, we have the, we rave about the final Agni Kai. We rave about like, you know, talk about like you cry over leaves from the vibe. But we also quote the giant mushroom, you know, maybe it's friendly. Like we quote that. <laughs> yeah. We quote that every bit as much, you know? 
Speaking of, I'm completely terrified to see what a live action co looks like. Oh. Completely terrified. Also, that panda spirit Loki gave me nightmares as a kid before it turned into a, a cuddly panda. I definitely gotta say, uh, going into this episode, I definitely had my reservations. But like, you know, now that I've like talked with someone who's a little bit more enthusiastic about it than I originally was, um, and then talking about what sort of potential the show could have i definitely can say that i've like kind of changed my mind and i'm actually a little bit more excited about what the potential for the show could be i love that i hope we've done the same for some people who come to the podcast feeling similarly like you i really am excited to know more about this because we do not know much about what this show is going to be and this show yeah. announcement was like almost like a year and a half ago a little yeah. over that. i mean no, i know covid's fucked some stuff up a little bit yeah. but I want to yeah. know stuff. <laughs> if I had to guess, I think they're doing a lot of tests for the bending. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of visual effects tests probably going on to make sure they really nail it. And I think I think Netflix has given them a pretty loose timeline to work with. Cuz they cuz they don't want it to come out too soon after Korra has been dropped. I mean, I'm not saying we're getting it by the end of the year obviously, but I think they want to give enough time for people to watch both shows on Netflix and soak it before in. they they finally put out some sort of trailer. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode, episode two of the Avatar Hour. We want to hear from you. Uh, if you have any suggestions on topics you'd like us to discuss on the show, feel free to contact any of our social media. So we are the Avatar Hour podcast on Facebook, on Instagram, same username, the Avatar Hour podcast, and Twitter is at Avatar Hour. You can also email us directly at theavatarhourpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to follow us personally, you can find me on Twitter at Kayla underscore underscore Gagman. And you can find me at hey it's underscore Andre. Also, if we can ask you guys to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe wherever you listen to the show, we really, really appreciate it. Definitely helps the show uh, become more discoverable and easy for people to find. All right, that's episode two. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Andre. And I'm Kayla. All right, see you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. guys so much for listening i've been on oh i said i've been andre disgusting (laughs) i hate when people say that